0: Welcome to the BodyWise podcast, focusing on the new Maudsley carer skills with me, Harriet Parsons, psychotherapist and training and development manager with BodyWise and Jenny Langley, author of Caring for a Loved One with an Eating Disorder, the new Maudsley skills-based training manual. Each episode in this podcast series will focus on one particular aspect of the new Maudsley carer skills. We will explain the concept, talk through the ideas behind the skill, and learn how that particular skill can benefit carers. Welcome to episode 10. In this episode, we're going to talk about the accommodation and enabling scale for eating disorders. As Jenny writes in the manual, it is common for the eating disorder to cause carers to do things we refer to as enabling and accommodating To the individual with the eating disorder. This scale is used at the Maudsley to help carers to reflect on whether and how they accommodate and enable the eating disorder by submitting to the eating disorder voice. Jenny, it's lovely to see you. Welcome. Hi Harriet, it's lovely to be here. Jenny, could you tell us what the accommodation and enabling scale is?
1: So Harriet, as you've already said, it's a scale that's used at the Maudsley and it's a really, really useful tool for carers to reflect where they are now, what's going on in their family setting. Obviously having to make what I call reasonable adjustments. So whenever somebody is sick or someone's having problems, you would of course make reasonable adjustments for them. So it's a really useful tool that carers can reflect on are these reasonable adjustments still working for us? Because obviously we made them for a good reason. Um, Should we carry on doing them or is there an alternative? So it's basically, it's a list of 33 questions and it goes through different types of ways that families adjust when they're looking after um, somebody with an eating disorder. So it really helps carers to reflect on Are they being inadvertently drawn in to support the eating disorder in some way? So obviously, as human beings, we're creatures of habit. So we might have set off responding in a certain way and then we just carry on doing it because it's become our habit. um, And maybe it's time to step away from that. So it's a really useful tool for reflection. And because it's got 33 different questions, it kind of really helps the carers to think about all the different dynamics that are going on in their family. Now, sometimes people say, what's the difference between accommodating and enabling? And for me, it doesn't really matter. It's whether what you're doing is, is beneficial or not. But in theory, accommodating is where the family in some way is supporting their loved one with the eating disorder to keep carry on some of their eating disorder behaviors. Whereas enabling is often um, the sorts of things that, that families might do or carers in particular might do that will, prevent anyone in the family so either the loved one with the eating disorder or other people within the family from having to face some of the negative consequences of things that come with the eating disorder like the messy kitchen or the you know the bathroom that's been left in a mess after a purging incident or something like that but it doesn't really matter whether it's accommodating or enabling it's these adjustments that families have made so it's that tool to be able to self-reflect is this Is this still helping or maybe we should start to think about making some
0: changes. Great so I suppose when you're speaking there the big word that I'm hearing is reflect so it's a tool to allow carers to reflect on their life at home as it is now having a person with an eating disorder living in that home. I suppose I always imagine that when we meet carers what's happening at home is that the whole household has become has has been molded around the person with the eating disorder so there are behaviors as you say that are being accommodated routines around food eating routines how the family eats have changed to try to reduce maybe anxiety in the person or to prevent those rows kicking off. And then in lots of other ways, maybe that aren't so obvious, the whole household has started to change around the eating disorders, a bit like that walking on eggshells at home. And so in terms of trying to support someone to recover, what I always think is that When a person who has an eating disorder starts to think about change or maybe tries to make a change that in the house, then that has become totally changed around the eating disorder, the ripple effect of that is felt by everybody. And that makes it all the more scary for the person who has the eating disorder because they're not doing it under the radar, so so to speak everybody knows, and that's kind of scary for them. So what I hear you saying is that this is a tool to help carers to reflect on all of the aspects of how their household might have subtly changed to accommodate or to enable the eating disorder and to reduce the anxiety and the fear and the explosiveness that the eating disorder brings into the house. Absolutely. And also from the
1: carer's perspective, the fear that if I do start to make changes, will it actually make things worse? And so that really feeds back into that walking on eggshells or treading
0: on eggshells. I call them the woes and toes, the walking on eggshells. Yeah, And that goes back to something that we mentioned in a previous podcast about the controlled crying idea, you know, that when you start to try and train a baby to sleep things get worse before they get better that baby yells its head off for the first couple of nights and so that's kind of frightening to do it's really it's really terrifying and it's the you know the power of that eating of
1: voice as you know harriet is that if the carers start to make changes so even if they're not expecting their loved one to make any specific changes themselves but when the carers start to make changes of course the loved one and their eating sort of voice are going to notice. So, the eating sort of voice is going to fight back. So, part of the point of doing this exercise is that helping carers to visualize and kind of, you know, visualize and
0: imagine what that distress is going to feel like and then be able to face that fear anyway. And that's a really important point that we're not talking about the person who has the eating disorder making changes we're talking about the carers reflecting on what changes they can make absolutely yeah
1: yeah so uh, it's it's really helping carers to kind of step back from that what we need to do is fix our loved one with the eating disorder um rather than we are the allies to our loved one with the eating disorder um and what can we do with them And what can we do ourselves to help them to start to think about making their own changes?
0: So you get that cascade effect, don't you? Absolutely. So you write in the manual that the behaviours include things like avoidance and modifying routine, reassurance seeking, which we spoke about doing in the reassurance trap, uh, meal context rituals, control of the family and turning a blind eye. And I wonder, would you have an example of each of these that carers might have given you in the workshops? Oh, I've got lots of examples. I'll just give you a few for each
1: one. So in terms of avoidance and modifying routine, often it's families avoiding social situations. Obviously, it's very difficult for the loved one with eating disorder to eat in front of others, particularly others who don't understand anything about eating disorders or they don't know that there's an eating disorder there. So, So any social situations, it might be um, a picnic in the park even, or it might be going to a restaurant, it might be granny's birthday, it might be other family gatherings, weddings, that sort of thing. Often you find families will just draw back from that and that then increases that feeling of isolation, doesn't it? So other things where carers modify their routine, we see very, very often carers will let go of their own self-care routines because they're just simply too busy looking after their loved one I don't have time to go to yoga or to play golf or to you know go to the book club or something like that because I need to be there for my loved one my loved one needs me so often that's that real reduction in the carer's blue balloon their own self-care Um, kind of infrastructure and then also obviously there's many times when carers will have to modify their work routine as well and all the kind of ramifications that come with that so whether it's having um, reasonable adjustments for themselves at work or whether it's having time off work Um, so those would be the big areas so the social situations carer self-care and work routines often get very much modified Um, and so the world of the carer becomes smaller because of that yeah reassurance seeking we talked about as you said harriet in the podcast on the reassurance trap often it's around is this the right food will this make me fat how many calories in this spring onion is this the right milk and just over and over and over again so so lots and lots of reassurance around food weight and shape issues and of course carers will readily give that reassurance to start with because it will keep the peace it will reduce the anxiety there's lots of reasons why carers would give that reassurance to start with but over time as we talked about In the other podcast it becomes a trap it becomes like a vicious circle and the person with eating sort of needs more and more and more reassurance meal context rituals again many 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 rituals come up often it's around special cutlery or crockery so teeny teeny tiny baby spoons and forks or you know the a disney themed little plates or bowl or something like that eat things like eating soup with a fork so many reasons for that obviously as we know The order that food is eaten, cutting up food into tiny pieces, and very much families saying, Yep, that's okay, that's okay, because food is actually being eaten. But over time, that starts to become an embedded eating disorder behavior that the carers are accommodating and enabling to. Um, control of the family well it could be control of so many different things so there's lots of overlap between these different areas but it might be around the specific timing of meals so dinner has to be before five o'clock or exactly at five o'clock or it must be after five o'clock maybe it has to be at 10 o'clock at night or something like that so it might be the time of a meal how long a meal takes who can be in the kitchen who can be in the dining room you know bathroom timetables all that sort of thing Um, So lots of control over the family. Um, And then the turning a blind eye, which is very much our ostrich metaphor, isn't it? Is um, turning a blind eye to eating sort of behaviours because, again, it will keep the peace and maybe some food will be eaten or some, you know, there'll be some regularity to to that kind of meal programme. So it might be turning a blind eye to nighttime binges, for example, and that often comes up. It might be turning a blind eye to food or money going missing, or it might be turning a blind eye when... Um, the person with the eating disorder is actually feeding the dog. So they're not actually eating the food themselves, but they're feeding the dog. But carers will turn a blind eye because their loved one is eating something. So those would be good examples. Those would be common examples. But there are many, many, many different examples.
0: And of course, there are overlaps between the different areas. Gosh, and when you're describing all of those, I'm thinking that, you know, it's entirely possible that one family... Is doing all of those things. Absolutely. Imagine how difficult life at home gets when everything becomes changed like that. And the tension, the anxiety, the exhaustion of trying to keep all of that going. I mean, it's amazing that carers are even able to make the decision to come to the workshop when they have all of that going on.
1: It really is quite something. And also, it's that's one of the benefits that's come out of COVID is that now that we're doing the workshops on Zoom, then it's much easier for carers to get that couple of hours out rather than having to get in the car, go somewhere else, you know, sometimes feel that they just can't make that effort. Um, And even if they, you know, they come to the Zoom workshop and aren't able to actually engage in the conversations because they're so exhausted, at least they can still be immersed in the model. So um, that's been a real benefit, hasn't it, for
0: all of our carers to be able to access And it also workshops. means that they can say things like, I'm going to have to pop up, off because it's snack time. I'll be yeah. back in 20 minutes. You exactly. Know, they're really in it with them in those moments as well. So what, when then do you ask carers to complete this scale? Because I imagine that if you do it too early, it's a bit overwhelming. Timing
1: is everything absolutely timing is everything. So a few years ago, I was doing some training of professionals online, and the family therapist thought that the accommodating and enabling scale, this is a really, really useful tool. And so what he did was he posted it out to all the carers before the course, and it really backfired because a lot of the carers felt like it was a guilt trip, that they felt that this is a list of things that we're doing wrong. And that's completely not the point of the accommodating and enabling scale. But you could imagine, Harriet, if this came through the post and um, you were ticking like, yeah, we do that, we do that, we do that. You would feel really judged and criticised, wouldn't you? So timing is everything. So the way that we use this is, is um, once we've helped the carers to build some self-confidence to kind of understand a little bit more about the eating disorder, to reflect, first of all, with the animal metaphors, which is very much a lighthearted way of looking at kind of reflecting on carer responses. And we've taught them some of the skills. So um, I I introduced this in the third workshop. So already the carers will have learned a lot about the Maudsley model, will have had some role play and some practice. The carers will have all bonded together. Um, they'll, They'll really have been getting into kind of like, okay, so there's no such thing as a right answer or a wrong answer. So then we will introduce the accommodating and enabling scale and we'll do it in that group setting. So I'll give the carers five minutes just to go through it. Not, not in great detail, just quickly to scan through, have a look, have a feel, you know, to think about mm, how could I use this? What's changed already? Maybe that might be a good thing. But definitely after we've introduced a lot of the other skills is when we would introduce this and definitely after the animal metaphors, because
0: too early and it's just too much to kind of get your mind around. So when they have um, read through it or quickly kind of ticked you know, their, their answers, what are the questions that you asked them to think about and why?
1: Okay, so the first question is how did it feel to fill in the questionnaire now remember we've already introduced them to owls in terms of reflecting on emotions so they're very well aware they've had that whole checklist of emotions they've thought about their own individual emotions so we've kind of got some kind of emotional discussion already going on so it's a good question how does it feel when you fill in a questionnaire like that and um, it's really interesting so, so somebody might say oh it was really sobering to realise we didn't realise the impacts that the eating disorder had had on our household. It really helps to clarify the mind um, and help you to remember what life was like before the eating disorder came to visit. So it could be that kind of, yeah, it was really sobering. It could be, actually, what a light bulb moment to know that these questions are on this questionnaire because they happen in pretty much every family. So there's very much a bonding moment. It's like, it's not just us. It's not just us doing these weird and crazy things. These are really, really common responses. So those quite often are the two biggest initial responses to that. How did it feel? Often the dads who might be a little bit more in a logical frame of mind, they'll say this is such a good framework. It's such a good kind of toolkit to kind of go back to and think, "Mm, Okay, well, well, we're doing that and that's okay for now. But we've been doing this for a while and, that, and that's something we could definitely talk, sit down and talk about, thinking about making some changes there, even if it's just getting back a little bit of that self-care for the carers. Um, so, yeah, lots of comments about the, the, the fact that it's a useful toolkit, often comments about what a relief to know that these are normal responses so you know and we can talk a little bit about oh I feel guilty because we've let this happen and then we can have a group conversation about that and actually that's a really really helpful thing for the carers to be doing as well is that okay of course of course guilt is a big emotion that that we all feel when we're looking after someone with an eating disorder and let's just unpick that a little bit more so it really really opens up the conversation about it's okay to feel all these different things then I ask why do you think family members might respond in this way? So there's that sort of, hmm. Well, because it keeps the peace and because our loved one will eat more if we do these things and um, it becomes a habit. So recognizing, yeah, some of these things become a habit. It feels that we're, we're doing something When we feel that there's not much we can do or we feel that we're failing in so many other areas, at least we're doing something. So that whole concept of the reasonable adjustment is when somebody's ill, of course, as a family, you're going to make those reasonable adjustments. So lots and lots of good reasons. And then, then, of course, Harriet, we can say Jill Todd's lovely expression. If it's working, of course, you're going to carry on doing it. It's only when you start to reflect. This has just become a habit. It's maybe holding our loved one back it's actually getting really boring, giving this reassurance over and over again, or we need to start getting some of our life back, then that's when the carers will start to think about um, making changes. And again, this fits back so neatly in the work we'll have already done with the carers about the cycle of change, where they are in their cycle of change, is that they're now thinking, hmm, okay, maybe we're not in action about changing all of these things, but we can start to move into preparation. We can start to think about, What little experiments, and it's always an experiment, what little experiments could we start to do to start to get some of our life back and start to, um, if you like, give our loved one a bit more autonomy so that we're not treading on eggshells, we're not running around doing all the kangaroo or the ostrich all the time, and we can start to give our loved one a bit more independence because both of them come together, don't they? The carer starts to make changes, they start to take a little bit of a step back, and then that is giving their loved one more space to start to take their own responsibility and have some independence and autonomy. So it's a lovely cascade in terms
0: of thinking about behavior change. So one of the benefits that I hear there is that it allows carers to think about being a different animal. So it allows carers to think about, well, what does it actually mean to be a dolphin? Or what does it actually mean to be a St. Bernard? And how can we get to that point? Because when we introduce the animal metaphors, you know, there's, they're at that point where they're just recognizing their response to having to care for somebody and they don't yet really know in themselves how they can start to change into a different animal. And yeah. so maybe this scale allows them to do that or give Absolutely. them you know, a, a, a way of doing that.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's, more, it's more smart if you think about it. So we'll come on to talk about smart planning later, won't we? But it's, it's more smart to have specific things to be thinking about rather than just mm, how can I morph myself into a different animal? So, yeah, so it really, really focuses the mind. So first of all, having, having explored why might family members respond in this sort of way that's on the accommodating and enabling scale, then we can ask the final question is, what might the possible benefits be of starting to make some of these changes? So, and often, um, you know, that, that it's that, well, we need, we need to be moving on, we're kind of stuck. So how many families say we feel really stuck? And maybe this framework is helping us to consider Hmm, okay, well, if nothing changes, then nothing changes, and we're going to be stuck like this for a very, very long time. So, carers start to think well, if we start to make changes, then we're role modelling that change is possible. If we can tolerate the distress that comes when changes are made and our fear that it might make things worse, then we're role modelling. That, that that's okay. It's okay to face your fears and do it anyway. So all sorts of role modelling conversation. If we succeed in one small tiny thing, then that will give us more confidence to try bigger things. So again that role modelling, the small baby steps or mini steps to start with, and then gradually building up to bigger steps, you know, not, not trying to run before you can walk. And then of course we can role model that every mistake is a treasure. So it's not always going to go right. But if we, if we have a setback, of course, we're going to be a bit disappointed, but we can draw a line under that and we can think again. Um, and maybe we can go back to the accommodating and enabling scale and say, hmm, maybe we're not ready to move away from this caring behaviour but there's 32 other things that we could consider. or And it's not just those 32 things, is it? Families will say, well, we're not doing exactly what's on the accommodating and enabling scale, but we can extrapolate that into other areas of things that we are doing that we can now see maybe are inadvertently kind of feeding the eating disorder voice. So it really helps the carers, really opens their minds to thinking about a whole
0: myriad and range of possibilities. So, could you maybe, for the people listening, just maybe summarise the benefits that you see? Yeah, so the, so
1: the main benefits is, is it's a really useful tool for carers to be reflecting, where are we now? What's going on? Then they can start to think, they can start to imagine. It doesn't mean they're going to make any changes tomorrow or next week or next month, but they can start to think, there are things that I can do even when my loved one is completely stuck, even when my loved one is not prepared to make any changes whatsoever at the moment, I can start to make some changes. So I can start moving forward. And then the other thing is because we're introducing this in a group setting, is the wonderful, wonderful richness that comes of carers talking about their different experience. So very often, carers will say, Oh, actually, I've seen this scale before. Maybe they've been on the workshops before, or they've read the manual or they've been on my website. I've seen this, this accommodating and enabling scale before. And actually, there were so many things that we have changed already. So now we feel much more confident. And then they can tell a little story about maybe how they did move away from the reassurance trap or they did get some of their quality of life back. So it's really powerful that having those conversations in a group setting. And so the carer that feels, I can't make any changes yet, is thinking, hmm, okay, well, that carer felt like that six months ago, and now they have made changes. And the other thing that comes out of the group discussion, which is so powerful, Harriet, is you don't have to challenge all of the accommodating and enabling behaviours. Some of them just don't end up being needed anymore. As the person with the eating disorder is starting to to move on and and make their own changes, some of these accommodating and enabling behaviours will just dissipate on their own. So it's not like a checklist of 32 things we have to challenge. It's just a toolkit for that self-reflection and start to think about are
0: are there things that I could start to think about making changes about. So what I hear in that then Jenny is that um, you're hoping that carers leave that workshop with a real reflection on where they're at and what they're doing as well as ideas about how they can make some changes so what what you're really doing in that is you're planting seeds of change in the carers minds yeah
1: and and hope hope and energy you know these conversations are very energizing for the carers so there are things we we can move forward that other families moved forward we can do that too
0: yeah yeah so what's the next step then where do you move on from from this in the workshops.
1: So so before we go to the next step, I just want to tell a little story because this is such a lovely story. Okay. So the 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 big thing here is carers come away from this exercise thinking there are actually quite a lot of things I can do. So there was when when things feel stuck. So families often say, "Don't we just feel so stuck?" So I had one family several years ago, way before COVID. And the mum and dad had been to the workshops a couple of times and they'd really embraced all of the skills, but they just felt really stuck. And their daughter was age 17, of BMI of about 17. You know, it's quite common to, to be a bit stuck at that phase. So out of medical danger, but, but not seeming to make any further progress. And the mum and dad were getting quite frustrated about that. So the mum came with me to one of the carers' conferences in London with Janet Treasure and Jill Todd and, you know, the whole very much new Maudsley approach. And there was an adorable PhD student talking about her research into smiling and the mum really took this on board so you know we've got all the research about the impact on the teenage brain of happy faces versus frowning faces and all that sort of thing and the mum could then reflect so she was used to reflection from having done all these exercises in the workshop so the mum reflected and we talked about it on the way train on, on the train on the way home and she said hmm this is something we could do so she goes home to her husband she describes the research and the lovely adorable phd student and she says do you think we're frowning a bit too much? Do you think it's all become a little bit too serious? And he said, for sure, we've become really serious. And they hadn't even really particularly realised. So they made a conscious effort to smile more. Okay, They didn't say anything to their daughter. They just made a conscious effort, not, not a grimace, obviously genuine smiling. So how did they do that? They would play bright, happy music rather than dark, you know, heavy music. They would have funny YouTube videos on. Dad would find funny stories or little jokes to tell or sing a silly dad song or something like that so they made a really conscious effort to to lift the spirits within the household and the mum writes me an email a month later so jenny things have and haven't changed what has what hasn't changed is my daughter's still 17 years old and she's still a bmi of 17 and that's okay for now We realise that she just needs a bit of a rest at this stage before she can move to the next level. What has changed is the atmosphere in the house. So whereas before, whenever I tried to give my daughter a hug, she would push me away. And it was all very tense and we were all very kind of downtrodden and exhausted. Now, if I give her a hug, she'll give me a hug back. And then the other thing, Jenny, is that I often tell my daughter I love her and it seemed to go in one ear and out the other. And I always remember you saying, she can hear every word, she just can't respond at the moment. So what has changed is that my daughter, not every time, but now my daughter will tell me that she loves me back sometimes. So that was a tiny, tiny change. Was they, made this con- they reflected, we're frowning too much, it's all got a bit intense and serious. They, they did a behavioural experiment around music and YouTube videos and silly dad jokes, and it lifted the spirits. So that's a really good example, yeah, of how them making a small, actually quite a small change could have a big impact on the atmosphere within the family. So next step. So the way I the way I do it within the workshops is I'll do the accommodation and enabling scale. And then we will talk in quite a lot of detail about the reassurance trap, because obviously that's one of the categories, isn't it, on the accommodating and enabling scale. So we'll have some role play, um, consider, you know, what families might do to move away from the reassurance trap We've got that example we used in the podcast about the, the milk questions and how many questions can you ask about the milk and having tokens and stuff like that. So we'll have a lovely conversation, group discussion and a bit of a role play around sidestepping the reassurance trap. And then we'll move to talk about in detail about the five step model for change, which really, really helps the carers to think about um, what behavioural experiments they might want to try next
0: week, next month or next year even. Mm. i love that and i love the way the smiling example is not about food exactly and it's not about calories or food or bmi or weight or anything it's about something different definitely
1: yeah we talk about smiling a lot comedy humor
0: really really valuable and it's free (laughs) that's true So and um, in our next podcast, we're going to talk about the five step um, approach to change as well. So um, that will be coming up. So is there anything else that you'd like to say about this, Jenny? I don't think so. I think it's I mean, it's such a it is such a wonderful, valuable tool.
1: We just need to be careful not to rush into it too quickly. So timing is everything to, to really, really help the carers. So so by the time we've introduced this scale, We've already done that little bit of psychoeducation, we've done all the empathy exercises, we've um, looked at the decisional balance again which is about the empathy of the challenges for change, um, all of the motivational language, we've thought a little bit more about carer self-care, um, we've looked at the um, we, we're going to look at the reassurance trap so so it's the timing of of using this scale is really really important and i imagine that carers who are new to eating disorders if they're just reading you know janet treasure's book or they've got the training manual if they if they look at this too quickly then it can kind of backfire a little bit so it's just making sure that that carers are kind of supported
0: to use this in a really really positive and, and hopeful way lovely So, and finally, where can people go to find out more?
1: So as always, there's all of the worksheets are downloadable from the website. There's videos that go with them as well.
0: Um, So do have a look at those. So there you have it. We hope that this episode is helpful for you and encourages you to go to Jenny's website and read through the scale for yourself so that you may reflect on life in your home at the moment. Remember that a really important part of the new Maudsie Carer Skills is being able to role model behavior and behavior change for your loved one. If you have any questions, please email them to info at bodywise.ie putting new Maudsie Carer Skills podcast in the subject line. If we get any questions, we will endeavor to answer them in future podcasts. We hope you will join us for our next episode Where we're going to focus on the five step approach for change. Until then, take care. Take care, everyone.